So uh, it was mid-August in 2001. The job interview had gone well, very well. So well, in fact, that they took her for a tour of the work areas. They showed her the desk that she would most likely be working at when the final T's were crossed and the final lowercase J's were dotted. She left feeling assured. She left feeling excited. She found out three days later that she did not get the job after all. And there was anger and confusion frustration, disillusionment, what had gone wrong? I mean, life has to move on. She has to move on. She still needs to find another job. She was trying not to speak to God. What a betrayal, right? But then on the other hand, she still needs a job. So, okay, let's try to work together again. I'm still mad at you, but let's go forward with this. Anger was not fully resolved in September. It was just too soon, right? Then the news. The office that she would have been working in was in the World Trade Center. September 11, 2001, the vast majority of the floor was destroyed by fire. Almost no one made it off that floor that day, but she had been spared. Her life had been saved. Her upset quickly changed to gratitude. Her view of God shifted radically. Her path forward now seemed full of blessing. One of the most challenging, one of the hardest things that I do is also one of the best. One of the hardest things I do is to listen and to watch other people's stories. And when people tell me their, their news, it can, be, it can be great news and it can be terrible news. And sadly, more often than not, it's terrible news. And I have listened to heartbreaking stories, so many. The good side is I've also walked with a number of people as they process and as they come through these heartbreaking stories. Sometimes living the story in all of its pain is easier than watching it from the outside. I know that in some of my own dark times, I think it would have been easier, it was easier to do it than, than it was to watch it. The watcher doesn't get to experience any of the lifting of the weight as things change. But it's so inspiring watching people come through their heartbreaks. So seeing people on the other side with rock, solid, unshakable faith. Man, that's, it's, it's inspiring. It, it's also incredible. There, there are so many stories, faith stories, that they, they can't go on very long before something comes up about the amazing, the out of the blue, the I didn't get to sign up for that circumstance. And when you hear people talk about what God did in the midst of their circumstances that, that no one would have ever signed up for, and, and they come out on the other side and with an insight that they want to share with other people, that kind of wisdom is expensive. And it's so worth listening to. These defining moments or these pivotal circumstances change lives. And God seemed um, so far away. And then looking back, wow, there is a God. I think that God knows my name. He's no longer just a Sunday school lesson. He is personal and he is intimate. The pivotal circumstances can be both positive or negative, but most of the time, those circumstances are big 
and they are negative. But in those times, people choose to cry out. They now have time when before they had no time. Grace before dinner became on your knees prayers begging for the intervention of God. And in those times, something begins to happen to a person's faith. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a, a great little book. It's called The Problem of Pain. And this is what he said in there. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, if you're not a Christian or if, or if you used to be a Christian, you are, you're a skeptic, that's great. Glad that you're tuning in, glad that you're listening along. You might be thinking this sounds a little bit like we are just trying to help God out because he's gone and backed himself into a corner. You know, God has uh, proclaimed himself to be a good, loving God, and then bad things happen, right? And now all these poor Christians are obligated to try and help God out. They all have to explain all of these bad things happening to good people. So maybe this is just a way that Christians uh, try to explain it all away, to, to remove that dark shadow. But you know what? There is an undeniable relationship between big, bad, bold, unexpected circumstances and our faith. It's not an accidental relationship. It's an intentional relationship that God is leveraging, and he's been leveraging it from the very beginning. So James, you, you, James, the brother of Jesus, not you, James, sorry about that, uh, who's right in the center of everything that's going on, right? That right there in, in Jesus' arrest and his trial, the crucifixion, dying on the cross. And here's what he wrote about inter, the interconnectedness of circumstances and our faith. And he wrote this back in the first century. So this is not a, a recent update, the upgrade, the new terms. This is not the new version of Scripture. This was there from the beginning. This is not just a way to update the PR manual. So in verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It produces something. It makes something. Something's going on there, and it's producing persevering faith. Big, strong, growing, enduring faith. Verse 4, let perseverance finish its work. God is up to something, and in the middle of that something, these are pivotal circumstances, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It is not accidental that Christians and non-Christians both face these overwhelming circumstances. It's not accidental that in the middle of those circumstances, something begins to happen to their faith in God. And this is one of the primary things that God uses to grow our faith and to strengthen our faith. It's one of the five things that we've been looking at, the five faith catalysts that God has been using, is using, and will continue to use to grow our faith. But this one is also one of the ones that we would almost never sign up for. Because oftentimes it's the negative, the awkward circumstances that have the potential to turn us away from God, that God oftentimes seems to leverage to do something in us, to change our heart and our minds, and he uses them to make our faith stronger. It is not accidental, and it's not just you. 
That's the way God works. That's the way God has been working since the very beginning of time. Now, we're going to look at a story today. It's a story in the life of Jesus that really illustrates this quite well. And you might not have thought about it like this before. It's a story that you're likely to have heard of. You might have even heard it. And that's the problem because as soon as, as, soon as we tell you what the story is, as soon as we begin, you, you jump in your mind to the end. You know what's going to happen. So I just want to ask you in advance to try and let yourself slow down. Um, try and experience this story at the same speed as the characters who are in this story. In this story, we are going to discover something uncomfortable. And this might just create a new category in your theology. It's an uncomfortable category that might create more questions than it provides answers. This is not a story of Jesus just leveraging someone's pivotal circumstance. In this story, Jesus actually creates the negative circumstance in order to grow someone's faith. So listen to this old story with the new grid in mind. The grid of God using pivotal circumstances to build faith. We're going to go to the, uh, the gospel of the Apostle John. This is the one he recorded to teach uh, people about Jesus. This story appears only in the gospel of John. This is the Lazarus incident. Now, a man, man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, and the village of, which was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. All three of these characters are close friends of Jesus. He has eaten in their home. They, uh, they support him financially. Um, tells us a little bit more about Mary, whose brother Lazarus lay sick. She was the same one who poured the perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus. Jesus is not nearby. He's about three to four days away by foot messenger. And here's the message that they send. Lord, the one you love is sick. That's dramatic, right? That's not just, hey, Jesus, just letting you know Lazarus is sick. Lord, the one you love is sick. You know who I mean. Jesus would know because they were tight. Jesus has healed many people, many, many strangers, many, many people in many, many different places, but people that he had never met before. He even healed people that he had never even seen. So, of course, when Lazarus becomes sick with, sick with a life-threatening illness, his good friends think, let's get to Jesus right away. Let's send for him. Let's bring him here. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Foreshadowing. Now it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So here's that new category I was talking to you about, a disease that leads to God's glory. It's all the same, though. You know, I'd like the, uh, the, the glory from the buzzer-beating three-point shot, right, that leads the team to victory. I'll take the shot. I'll sink it. Point to the sky, right? I'll take the glory and I'll point to God every time in that situation. You send a reporter over to me and I'll just tell them, you know, I'd just like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll sign up for that glory-giving time every time. But here we have another program, another and more effective program. It's the program where something really, really negative is introduced into your life and God says, I'm going to allow that. 
and I'm going to leverage that for my glory. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So verse 5, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and we get that again, right? Just in case we didn't catch it the first time when they said it, these people are close. They are not groupies. They're not tag-alongs. They're not recent additions. Six, so when Lazarus, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Jesus just did exactly what you would not expect him to do. And so one of the reasons that I believe Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, why I believe that those are actual historical documents talking about actual real historical people and real historical events, is that they, they record the, the actual words and the events of Jesus' life is because of events and stories like this one. If you were writing fiction, if you could come up with anything that you wanted to write down in order to try and get people to love and to follow Jesus and to be on your team, you would not write this story with those details. Everything about it seems wrong. So, so Jesus gets word. Not that somebody somewhere is sick, right? He gets words that Lazarus is sick. And he says, hey, thanks for the information, guys. Okay, sit back down. We're not going anywhere for two days. You have felt that in your life. You might be feeling that right now. God, help me. Please, God, help me. God, I, I need a job. Please, God, I'll even go to church. Help me out. Nothing. Verse 7, and then he said to his disciples, let's go back to, to Judea. Two days of waiting. Two days of Mary and Martha suffering. Two days where Mary and Martha watched their brother die. Two days of Mary watching Lazarus while Martha goes out to the road to see if she can see Jesus coming. Bethany is in Judea. Judea has not been a happy place for Jesus to visit. And going to Bethany to visit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus means going to Judea. Verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. You remember that, right? You remember that whole thing, right? You remember that we're your disciples, and, and if you go, and we go back with you, and you get stoned, it's really, really likely that we're going to get stoned too. And yet, you are going back? Hey, Jesus, you got a good memory, right? You're a good teacher. You got a great memory. Do you remember that time that you did that long-distance wireless healing thing? That guy came up to you and he asked, hey, can you help heal my servant? And you said, sure, let's go. And he said, no, 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 we don't need to go. You can do that. You can do that right here. I know the kind of power you have. You remember that? You remember that, Jesus? Why don't we just do the same thing for Lazarus? right? That sounds like a way better idea than going there and maybe getting stoned. It's not just me I'm worried about here, Jesus. And honestly, I'm, I'm thinking about you. I don't want you to get stoned either. Verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go there to wake him up. Verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better, right? Great news! Right? If you're sleeping, you're healing, right? If he's sleeping, we don't need to go. No sense of us all risking our lives, right? 
Verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So 14, he, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. What? You know that? Well, then why didn't we go? Right? Confusion. Drama. Didn't you love those people? You sat us back down for two days, and now you tell us he's dead? 15, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Yeah, but what about for Lazarus' sake? Now remember, these are the guys that Jesus is going to hand off the whole thing to in a very short amount of time. He's looking at them and goes, you're scared all the time. You're running around and you're worried. But hold on a second. I've got something so big, so overarching that I want you to learn. This is so important that I am willing for someone whom I love to die. I'm willing for hearts to be broken. That is just how important this is. So that, all right? And now I'm going to tell you the reason behind all of this. Now I'm going to let you in on what is really going on. I'm going to give you the full picture. Do you want to know why we delayed for two days? So that you may believe. There's belief in one hand, right? And there's pain and suffering on the other. And Jesus, in your economy, these things balance? Belief is more important than being healed? That's right. Faith is that big of a deal? Yes. It's hard to believe that God would do that. And many of you listening this morning, either here or you're listening later on, you have said at some point, you have thought at some point, you have heard at some point, I don't believe in God, I don't believe God would, dot, dot, dot. But here it is, right in front of us. Who is this God that you believe in? Now, do you know why I think that this really happened? Because it's just way too severe to make it up. That seems to be in total opposition to believe everything that we want to believe about God. This is how important it is to God that we have big, bold, strong, audacious faith. But let us go to Him. All right, so we jump down, verse 21. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, and then she says basically the same thing that, that, that you have said. Whether you're a Christian or whether you are not, you have said something like this. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, this is your fault. Jesus, you helped that servant of the Roman centurion, and come on, he's the enemy. Why would you even think about that? How could you help them and not help me? Why them? Why not me? If you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, then I would not have had to answer all those questions of all the people who've already come by. Where's Jesus? I thought he was your friend. Where's Jesus? Why did he not heal your brother? And it's not like it's bad enough that I had to watch him die. I had to watch him die and know that you weren't coming. I had to watch him die and know that you weren't coming. And, and then at the same time, I still felt like I had to protect you. And I had to protect you and I had to protect your reputation in front of all these other people who are questioning you. 
And if you could have just done what you could have done, then this would never have happened. Verse 22. But I know, which means, but I believe, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha is standing in front of a man, eye to eye, with a guy. He's an average guy. He's not wearing a super suit. He's not, he doesn't have lightning cr- sort of crackling all around him. He's of average height, average appearance, average guy wearing average clothes, and she's standing looking at this average man, and as angry as she is, and as confused as she is, and as, as disoriented as she is, she can look at him and say, here's what I know. God will give you whatever you ask. That's why I called you on behalf of my brother. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 24, Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she answers by pulling out a theology card and plays that one. Put that one down. And this is what we say to each other at funerals all the time. We encourage each other with this truth. Yes, I know. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You believe I'm a good teacher. It's bigger than that. You believe that God will listen and he will answer and he will give me whatever I ask, but it's bigger than that. You are right that I am a miracle worker and that I could have saved Lazarus, but it's bigger than that. It's so big, it's so important, it's so central to everything that I'm about. It's so important for people who will live hundreds of years, even thousands of years later. I am personally. I am the embodiment. I am the resurrection and the life. And you don't make a statement like that without backing it up. And that's what this moment was all about. Who is Jesus? Who is this God you believe in? Jesus makes a statement that up until now he has never said anything like. He says, you are looking at resurrection. You are looking at life. The one who believes in. In Greek, there's no word for trust. There are just words for faith and believe. John knew this as he's writing this down, okay? He knew that this meant more than believe that. It's also more than believe about. This is one of the very first recorded times in the Greek language where this word configuration is used. Believe in, which means trust. Jesus says, anyone who trusts me will live, even though they die. Verse 26, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus says to Martha directly, do you believe this? Martha, I want you to believe more about me. This is about your faith. This is also about your freedom. This is about your confidence in Jesus. It is so important that Jesus would go to this length for this lesson. And you say, you hear this and you go, frankly, I'm just not comfortable with that. And I say as a pastor, I'm not comfortable with that either. But that is what Jesus did. And that's how important your faith, my faith is to Jesus. He sees beyond what we see in this moment. Your faith, living like you trust God, 
is the best. It is the highest. It is the most significant way of honoring God. I believe, even when it feels like I have nothing to hang my trust on. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And Jesus, I believe that even though you let my brother die. I believe that even though you didn't do what I wanted you to do. I believe that even when you didn't answer my prayer. I believe that even though you didn't do what everybody else was saying that you should do, I believe that even amidst the ridicule and the scorn I have received from the people around me, Jesus, I have nothing to hang my belief on right now. And I still believe. So Jesus asked, take me to the grave. And so the, uh, he gathers there with all of the mourners and uh, here we have the shortest verse in the Bible. 35. Jesus wept. Thirty-six. Then the Jews said, see how much he loved them. And here we get the clash of the world that we live in. Jesus who can perform miracles. Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus who knows what he is about to do. Instead of rushing in and just doing a miracle, he pauses to feel exactly what Mary and Martha have been feeling, exactly what you have felt as you stood over the grave of loved ones, like you felt when God didn't come through enough for you, exactly like you felt when your kids didn't turn out the way you wanted them to. All those days when we say, God, we believe but you're not doing anything. He pauses in that. And then it's like he says to you and he says to me, I understand how that feels. I mourn with you. And then he asked Mary and Martha and the people around to move the stone away. So Lazarus had been buried in a cave and, and a big stone is placed in front of it. That keeps everything out and it keeps the smell in. And there would be smell because he's been in there for four days. The King James Version is masterful in this section. One of my favorite parts, it says here, with the English accent, which is the way it always works, but Lord, the body will stinketh. It's beautiful. <laughs> and so they move the stone and this has now become a seriously awkward moment, right? Everyone's looking on. We were just mourning here. Who's going in there? This dude is like at least four days late. Now he comes in. He wants to open it up to have a little looky look in there. Come on. This is disrespectful. You don't do that kind of thing. This is not what we do. Grumble, grumble, mumble, mumble. But this isn't just for their benefit, all right? This is for our benefit also. So Jesus prays a, a really odd little prayer here. He looks up to heaven. And here's a version of that prayer. You can read it yourself, it's there, but this is, I want to kind of bring it into our language. God, you know what I'm about to do. And I know what I'm about to do. But I just really want everyone here to know that you and I have a connection. I don't want them to accidentally think that I just did something on my own. I just want them to know that I am simply here doing your will. 
You have given me power over death. 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet are wrapped in strips of linen and there's a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And if there was ever any doubt in their minds or in our minds that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Any disagreement to that claim just evaporated. Jesus just showed the connection between pivotal circumstances and the development of our faith. God is so honored by your trust. He will leverage anything and everything to grow our faith. And the connections are really hard to see sometimes without someone telling you their story or without looking back and analyzing your own story. What we all need here are translators of circumstance. People who go with us to discern what is going on and what is still going on. And that's why we connect with others. To aid us, to guide us, to walk with us. You're not supposed to go alone. We go through and we go with. Together we will overcome, we will bear up under, and we will come through, through and with. Without these translators of circumstance, it's not hard to understand why so many people turn away from faith. What makes the difference where we lean into God in the pivotal circumstances or we lean away from Him? We have all heard stories about someone who, who's, whose mom died when they were 12 or, or something like that, and, and then they ran from God and they said, He can't be trusted. The thing that makes the difference about lean in or lean away, the people that they are surrounded by. And anyone can translate a circumstance, but some people do it so that we grow in faith instead of growing in despair. Tragedy isn't proof of anything. Tragedy and pain are part of the story. Philip Yancey said this, there is nothing worse than disappointment in God. Disappointment with God. Unless it is disappointment without God. And all of us at moments or at times are going to be disappointed by God. But you can also grow to be in a place where you can be disappointed with God and yet you still trust Him at the same time. What we endure is not a mystery to God. No, He understands and He has walked in it Himself. Hebrews 4 tells us this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Kind Father, I know that today there are men and there are women here right now who are in the middle of this. 
And eventually we all are. Like Mary and Martha, we are, we're going to ask, where are you? Where were you? I don't like the way things have gone. It's not fair. Was I not good enough? Did I not attend enough? Did I not give enough? Is it my fault? Where were you? For those who are in the middle right now, Jesus, I ask that you would please provide a sign, a hint, a glimpse of your presence. They need to know you're there. Remind them that they have not been abandoned. Our pain and our suffering are not the exceptions. They are part of the standard storyline. They will come. We will have to face them. Let me see you in this. If I can see you in this, then there is hope. There is hope because, Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. Let our trust in you continue to grow stronger. Please. Amen.